you know, you, you literally are looking at being 110 years old and looking like you're 60. So it's, it's entirely doable now. We've, we've turned the corner and we have entered a new era where anyone that wants to can opt in to literally changing what, what we think is possible um, at any given age. And it is entirely possible now. Like most people your age probably think, oh, well, you know, mid fifties, that's really old. I'm here to tell you right now that it's your second 20s if you take care of your machinery, the machinery in your body. You, you, it's literally like being in your 20s. There's nothing different in every way. Do you want to know what it is? Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Apartment Podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest today is Joel Green. Joel is the founder of Veep Nutrition Systems and a researcher who has pioneered many nutrition hacks. Joel, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Sim, for having me on. I, it's a great honor. Yeah, I first heard about you for maybe like a few weeks ago, and uh, you're, the kind of ideas that you have are really uh, cutting edge and really fascinating. So uh, uh, I'm I'm expecting people to uh, you know enjoy the conversation, but I think most of the people haven't heard about you specifically. So, but you have been around like the uh, the area of nutrition and biohacking for like decades. So maybe can you tell us a little bit about your story? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll 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 give you the semi short version, which <laughs> I um, long story short, uh, my, my journey started about 1970 as a kid, I would get up every morning at 5am and I'd, I'd go work out with Jack LaLanne. Hmm. And for whatever the reason, I just always had a big interest in health and everything to do with that. So um, like in fifth grade, I would, during the summer, I would go run interval sprints, uh, just trying to get faster. And I was lucky to live right around a bunch of Olympic track and field athletes when I was a young kid. So uh, Mac Wilkins, who was a silver medalist in the discus, and Bruce Jenner, the gold medal uh, decathlete, and a bunch of others lived where I lived. And a lot of them trained uh, at my local high school. So I would just you know, ride my skateboard there when I was 12 years old and just clean and jerk for hours uh, with these guys. And I was always interested in that whole thing. So um, I was a competitive athlete in track and field. And in the mid 80s, it was really kind of the boom uh, where, where, where what we call bodybuilding or fitness today began to mainstream. And uh, what you saw was um, a lot of fads sort of would take hold. So in the late 80s, um, MCTs kind of hit the market. And there was a company called Champion Nutrition that put on their label, they put, we put MCTs and they're the fatless fat. And that was the era of no cow or no fat. Like everything you saw said no fat on it. People thought fat was bad and you had to have no fat and everything. And so I just was blown away by this idea. Like, wow, a, a fat that doesn't make you fat. So I started researching what I could back then in the magazines and learning. And right about 19, early nineties, the keto diet came out and um, Vince McMahon, the, the wrestler, uh, the, the W, uh, WWE, whatever, um, put a bunch of their bodybuilders on keto diets. And so the keto diet kind of, kind of took hold a little bit. And I, I started trying to learn about that. And this whole idea that you could, in the era of no fat, the idea that somehow fat could make you lean, it just, it just seemed crazy to me. So I wanted to learn more about it. And then right about that time, um, a guy named Jeff Everson, 
who was really popular. He was uh, Miss Olympia, Corey Everson's husband, um, popularized uh, metrics. And he was, he wrote this big long article where he said what he was doing. We didn't have a word for it then. It wasn't called time restricted feeding, but he said what he was doing was eating one meal in the evening, one meal a day. And so I, I would just try anything. So I, I, I tried that. And if I was hungry, I would have a metrics and I got ripped. I got ripped to the bone for like five years and everybody always wanted to know what I was doing. And, you know, I kind of became an advice giver and, um, it was great for a while, but what happened was right about year five, um, I started eating uncontrollably and I, I didn't, I didn't know what I had done. Um, the science wasn't quite there yet, but I, I knew that I had done something from all of the time restricted feeding that I'd done. And, um, it, it really became a problem because I had never had issues with eating. I, I never had any problems. And then I, I, I just had this crazy desire to eat. So right about um, the late 90s, I was just trying everything. Um, like like I, I had all these cycles of different things. I would do like fresh, fresh whole, organic, raw, you know, and then I'd be in my macro phase. And I went through all these phases trying to figure out what I'd done. And I started this website in 2001 called Monster Nutrition, where I would just publish articles about science. And really, I was just trying to solve my own problems. Um, and so what happened was in 2000, oh, and I was working with all these fitness models and, you know, people in the industry, and I kind of learned a lot. And right about 2003, um, I went to work for a technology company, I became the CEO. And it's kind of a funny story. I, um, I came into it like 212 pounds and 5% body fat. And in three years, I went to 260 pounds and just fat. So mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, that for me was um, a very interesting time because I had done fitness for 30 plus years. And what happened to me really is what happens to most people over time. And it's that you, you cycle through these seasons in life mm. and you know, you get into marriage, family, kids, career, pressure. And so really funny, my weight gain exactly paralleled my company's growth curve. Like they both shot up. And so what happened was um, I discovered that in the real world over time, time goes to zero. And it really, really, really bothered me because I'd, I'd given my whole life to kind of being fit, you know, just as a regular person. I never did steroids, never did any of that stuff. And what I discovered was that... Um, the, the, the pressures of life just compete for time. And that led to this period starting in 2006 where um, I was doing very well and I started um, this website <clears throat> and I was, I was just really interested in research and, and talking about what was really true. So I started publishing all these articles and one of them was an article on the gut biome. And in 2006, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gordon launched what was the, seminal article on the gut biome and it, it established for the first time that we could control body composition via manipulating gut species so i just wanted to try it and i created this hack and it was incredible i i mean it was amazing i went from 212 or 229 pounds to 212 in seven days mm -hmm. i did no exercise i i couldn't like literally had no energy um, and I just got ripped on this and it was purely, it wasn't by, it wasn't by the usual stuff. It wasn't by counting calories or anything. It was, it was by altering energy harvest by manipulating gut bacteria. Mm -hmm. And it was really kind of interesting at the end of that seven days, um, my poop was green and had no 
smell whatsoever. <laughs> so, so I knew I'd done something. So long story short, um, I created this software called the Veep Nutrition System. And it was really based around all this really crazy new cool research about, you know, the gut biome and all these, all these, just the, the late 2000s were a fantastic time for, for research. Um, in 2009, um, some fascinating studies were published on how you could manipulate signal pathways to control aging and all this cool stuff was there. So um, long story short, I didn't release it as a, as a consumer tool. I went after hospitals. And so we signed our first hospital late 2011. And then that led to all these really big kind of corporate engagements where like these big cities, like the city of Phoenix, um, Houston mm. would come into my software system. And what was really interesting about that time was there was all this cool research coming out and I had thousands of people using my software. So what I would do is I would, I would read something in a piece of research and then I would create a protocol, put it in the program, and then I would harvest all this data really quick. And some really interesting stuff came out of that. Like for example, in 2009, there was this article published called um, uh, Human Gut Communities Are Rapidly Modifiable um, Through you know, Key Substrate. And it, this article talked about how certain types of, of fiber substrates could rapidly alter the gut biome. So I put some protocols in there just to test. And within like a couple of weeks, we started getting these emails from people going, I'm not sleeping. What's your program doing? Mm-hmm. And that led down this road of like, what are we doing? We don't know. So... Long story short, what we were doing was spinning up so much bifidobacteria so fast that people were getting massive pulses of B vitamin production at bedtime and they weren't sleeping. Hmm. And so all this, all this kind of data harvest with all these people to kind of, you know, quote unquote, experiment on um, led to a lot of um, innovations, I would say, in terms of um, the way that we could manipulate um, the gut bacteria and signal pathways. Mm-hmm. And so what that led to was um, I kind of I kind of wound up just by accident um, at the forefront of, of, you know, application of some cutting edge research. And what that led to was um, uh, I got a meeting with Quest Nutrition, the guys that make Quest bars. And the founder of Quest, Ron Penna, is is a genius. And he is also very much into research and science and anti-cancer. And mm-hmm. I got like a 60-second meeting with him. He was going to blow me out of the room. And then I started talking biobabble. And next thing you know, it led to all these sort of really cool opportunities where um, I wound up doing some consulting with Quest to um, way before there was a fasting mimic diet. We wound up mm-hmm. um, looking to engineer foods that could mimic fasting by reducing methionine content in the foods. Mm-hmm. And that led to like some articles I published in muscle, muscle and fitness and a bunch of other things. And really what it came down to ultimately was I was sitting on so much research that people would ask me things like, um, Hey, should I, should I lose fat or should I fast or should I do all these things? And I would get into these long winded answers. And I'm like, okay, I just, I got to write a book. So <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Yeah. That brings us Sorry for that long-winded answer. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a great overview, and uh, it's definitely true that these kinds of uh, topics, they've been uh, around for quite a while, long while, like especially ketosis and fasting and uh, calorie restriction mimetics and et cetera. And they, they always, uh, like we're always kind of refining the concepts and the understanding of those things are constantly growing, so to say, and especially like the microbiome and those sort of things. Yeah. Um, I, one of the points I make in my book is 
that in my experience, and this is, this is just, it's not a theory, it's just my personal witness. So a person's witness is different from a theory. Like a theory is you have ideas and you can debate that. A person's witness is just what you've seen. So mm -hmm. what I've seen is that the long-term effect of anything is usually the opposite of the short-term. Mm -hmm. And I saw that with um, time-restricted feeding and intermittent fasting back in the 90s. And I've seen that with most things. So it's really one lesson that, that all this time and experience has taught me is that you, you really have to play the long game because if you, like you are, you are very, very, very fortunate, you know, because you're very advanced right now at a young age um, and you are actively applying things that at your age applied properly. You know, you, you literally are looking at being 110 years old and looking like you're 60. So it's, it's entirely doable now. We've, we've turned the corner and we have entered a new era where anyone that wants to can opt in to literally changing what, what we think is possible um, at any given age. And it is entirely possible now. Like most people your age probably think, oh, well, you know, mid-50s, that's really old. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now that it's your second 20s if you take care of your machinery the machinery in your body. You, you, it's literally like being in your twenties. There's nothing different in every way. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so true. Like uh, the information is there now and uh, we just have to kind of apply it in the right context. And especially like you said, what may work now isn't definitely going to work in the future. And uh, you can constantly have to kind of adjust your approach and uh, things like, you know, chronic, chronic uh, ketosis, chronic, chronic calorie restriction, chronic fasting, uh, chronic exercise, and uh, chronic even like overfeeding, those things, they aren't going to be beneficial. So the kind of best, best adaptations come from just uh, cycling these different uh, pathways, as well as uh, knowing like when do you trigger them, in what amounts, and, uh, and how. You make a really good point. Um, so a couple things you brought up is you introduced the idea of time, you introduced the idea of seasons, and you introduce the idea of balance. And one of the reasons I wrote my book is that it, when you look at any endeavor, it doesn't matter what it is, any endeavor, when that endeavor steers away from reality and steers away from what is really true, at some point, there's going to be a very loud, very hard snap back to what is really true. And what I had seen over you know, the last five, six, seven years was that um, as a whole, the, 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 let's call it the industry or the, you know, the conversation, whatever you want to label it with, mm -hmm. had in very, very important respects drifted so far from what is really true that one of the, one of the things I was attempting to do in my book, uh, I hope I accomplished it, was to, um, was to really get back to things that we can't get away from. One of those ideas is that the systems of the body must, must be balanced. And the highest truth of health, if you really inventory a lot of research, you're going to see consistently this, this word, loss of homeostasis, which is just a big word that means imbalance. Mm -hmm. And so what you're going to see, the highest truth of health is, is that the systems of your body must be in balance and that it's the imbalance of anything that creates disease. Mm -hmm. And we had really drifted into this era where if you, if you take a look at the different schools of thought right now, you know, you have one school of thought that's like, you know, plants are good, 
and meat is bad. And then you have another school of thought that's like, well, meat is good and plants are bad. And then you have, you know, well, protein's good and carbs are bad or fat's good and protein's bad. You have, you have all these polarized schools of thought. Um, and, and really what they're all doing is the same thing. They're, they're all saying the way that you obtain health is to imbalance protocols. So that if you imbalance protein, that's how you're going to be healthy. Or if you imbalance fats, that's how you're going to get healthy. And what I would offer up is that the exact opposite is true of that. And it's the sustained imbalance of things over time that creates disease. So and in my book, I use the example of water. Like water is super healthy, right? We need it. We need water. It's essential. If you imbalance water, it'll kill you. And you can go down the list of healthy things and it's very easy to see that if you imbalance long-term sustained healthy things, uh, you're going to promote disease, even through healthy things. Um, the other idea is that timing rules the discussion. And it's, it's not just daily time. It's not just diurnal timing, but the human body has what's called circuceptin rhythm. That is seven-day rhythm. And, and seven-day rhythm is bound up into all of biology. So when you begin to look at this, it gets very interesting very fast. Really, like, for example, the way you eat on Sunday, usually, it doesn't look anything like the way you eat on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. And the way you eat on Friday doesn't look anything like the way you eat on Tuesday. Yeah. And when you begin to look at what's called uh, chronoimmunology or chronobiology, um, it gets very interesting very fast. So we see that with the application of uh, specific medicines, scientists are now starting to look at, mm, well, what day of week is best for this? And so you get into this very good argument that days of the week are these unique things that have unique nutritional needs. And then beyond that, we get into seasons. Mm -hmm. And the idea of seasons leads us into what you were talking about, which is that if you look at the ancestral narratives, you can make a really good case that there were seasons of different types of nutritional inputs, different types of health inputs. We had a season where maybe meat was plentiful. We had a season where it wasn't. We had to do other things. And so once you begin to sort of take that in as a big picture, it's very freeing because you can have a season of keto. It's fine. You can have a season of all meat. You can have a season of plants. But long term, you got to balance these things out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And you know, that's kind of the uh, mistake a lot of people make in terms of trying to achieve the balance, like they're trying to do everything uh, in moderation at the same time, like they're doing like the standard American diet, which is essentially like a balanced diet from a, like a macronutrient perspective. But uh, like, like you said, the balance itself should be looked at uh, more of like, a, yeah, like, how, how do you balance it over the course of the entire week, as well as over the course of the entire year and uh, months and etc. So yeah, like the balance itself, you have to kind of go out of balance every once in a while, uh, in order to achieve this uh, optimal state of balance eventually. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, so ancestral narratives are very useful. I use them, you find them very commonplace today, you see ancestral narratives behind, you know, uh, paleo thinking behind carnivore thinking. Mm -hmm. um, we have to always remember that a narrative is not a set of facts. It's it's a story, yeah. and yeah. It, it can change. We don't actually know, but what we can, where we're always going to be un, in, safe is when we just try and come to what seems to make sense. And what seems to make sense is that if we look at an ancestral narrative, it seems to make sense that seasons are real and that seasons can drive availability of 
things in our diet and the way that we do things. For example, research on winter has shown that it has the highest incidence of stroke and heart attack and that we tend to sleep more in the winter. So, you know, there's a very good, very plausible reason for thinking that, um, that in different seasons you can do different things and that's fine. There's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. Like, for example, you want to do three to six months of a keto diet. Fantastic. But eventually you've got to come back to center. And, and right. that seems to make sense. Right. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so let's talk about the book now. Uh, the, sure. it's, it's called Peak, Peak Human. And it's essentially going to give you like this uh, guideline into how do you slow down aging and just achieve your optimal uh, health. So let's, what are maybe like some of the great biggest uh, concepts of the book as well? There are four foundational concepts in the book that uh, I, as, as a new foundation, I attempted to lay out. One was the idea that we've already talked about, which is balance is the highest truth of health and imbalance is actually disease. Imbalance is long-term sustained or disease. So that, that's a key idea to grab onto. Another key idea is the idea of what I call biological duality. And we live in this era that I call is defined by what I call baby talk. Um, I use the analogy of words mm-hmm. and it's that words are powerful. Babies use words like a baby that says cookie is probably going to get a cookie. But if you want real power, you need to harness the power of speech. Speech involves what, when, and how meaning that you say the right thing in the right time and in the right way. And you can get elected president in the United States. I mean, it's words and speech are very powerful. Well, it turns out that same principle is true for anything for the body. And so we live in this era that's all about this good, bad, black, white thinking. It's all about, you know, um, well, uh, you know, uh, fasting is good. Big meals are bad. Uh, carbs are bad. Fats are good. Uh, dairy is bad. Um, soy is good. You know, we live in this era where, where, where you have these people who are, everybody's fighting each other in these tribes over what's good and what's bad. And the truth is, all of it is actually very simplistic thinking. It's very simplistic baby talk yeah, for thinking. Yeah. But once you begin to look, take a step back and, and really look what people are asking, what everybody's always really been asking is what, when, and how for anything and everything. But that's what people really want to know. They want to know like, hey, is, uh, is beetroot good? Um, or what, what's good for my circulation? Okay, great. Well, how do I use it? What time do I use it? What time? That's what people want to know, what, when, and how. Yeah. So when you begin to look at what I call biological duality, you'll see something very quickly come into play, and that is that anything can be good or bad. Anything. And I use the example of antioxidants and free radicals. So we think that free radicals are bad, antioxidants are good, but when you look at how things really work, what you quickly see is that... Um, too much antioxidants are bad um, and antioxidants and the use of them depends on the right timing, the right tissue in the right way. And the same is true for free radicals. Free radicals can be very good in the right tissue, the right timing, the right way. So this is how things really work. And if you are pursuing a strategy for your body, it's not based on what's true about your body. It is guaranteed over the long term that you're not going to be happy because you're not doing things based on what's true about your body. So I lay these foundational concepts in the book, um, but ultimately what the book's really about is a different way of thinking and a better to-do list to get you what you really want. And so if you're into fitness or bodybuilding or biohacking, you don't have to give any of those things up. 
But what we're doing is taking into account time and keeping the body young as a paradigm. Yeah, yeah, it's so, it's so true. Like the black and white thinking is so predominant, especially in social media where people tend to uh, gravitate towards their own echo chambers of their particular <laughs> cult, so to say, their particular diet cult. Like right. they, they, they kind of get indoctrinated, whether into a, like a vegan diet or uh, let's say a keto diet or carnivore diet, then they always, or if it fits your macro, macros diet, then they always start to use like the same uh, ideas of this black and white thinking that, yeah, like meat is bad, carbs are bad, or vice versa, that plants are good and et cetera. So it's uh, always a much more, in-depth answer to all of this and like we said you have to take into account the timing the quantities and yet like general uh, context of the situation but like most people just want to get like the quick answers of tell me what to eat and tell me what's the simple answer and here's the here's the problem with that Um, people are always asking me what's the simple answer so here's here's the truth and and again this is the point is that we have to if you want to get if you want to get where you want to go You've got to deal with what's really true. And as long as you're dealing with what's really true, you'll get where you want to go. So here's what's really true. The body's not simple. And I wish it was. I really do. But it's not. It's, it's, it's the last thing that's simple. It's so complex. It's mind-boggling. So to get where we really want to go, um, a good analogy is in the early 90s, um, if you look at martial arts, martial arts was divided into these camps, like these tribes, like these echo chambers, like karate's good and jujitsu sucks or you know, <laughs> boxing's good. And you know, it was the same thing. And then along came mixed martial arts. And what mixed martial arts did was said, mm, actually, none of you guys actually work in a real fight. Let's figure out what works in a real fight. And it was by taking the right move at the right time in the right situation. So you know, if, if someone grabbed onto me, then I need a little bit of judo. If it went to the ground, I need some jujitsu. If it was standing up, I need some striking. And it was the ability to use all of these things when needed that sort of changed the game. And me personally, I believe right now we're in that exact same place where we're going to move out of this black-white stuff, um, this simplistic baby talk for health, and we're going to begin to look at, like, mm, for example, plants in, in vegan diets. Well, there's some benefits. Um, you accidentally restrict methionine. That's good. Um, you, you get fiber and you can make butyrate in the gut. That's good. Uh, that's good. Um, the, the downside is if you do too much of it, you're not making enough B vitamins in the brain. Uh, the types of fats have very different types of carnitine transporters, not the best thing in the world long-term. Um, meat, uh, meat has very unique aspects that are great for muscle growth, so we need some of this. However, it's going to ferment um, O6-methyl-2-deoxyguanosine in the gut. That's promoting cancer, so we can offset that with fiber. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we quickly get to this place where we're like, hey, we can create um, something better. It's much easier. You just got to learn the moves. It's, it's like jujitsu. Yeah. And that's what I attempted to do in the book was just create a very simple list of moves you could learn that give you great power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about some of the uh, the anti-aging pathways that you mentioned in the book. You know, the common ones like AMPK and sirtuins and esophagus. So, uh, how do you leverage them for uh, anti-aging purposes? Uh, great question. The first thing to understand is that timing rules the discussion. So, the f- the first thing we have to come back to is to understand all of those things have a natural home a natural rhythm in what's called the genetic rush hour. And that's in the deep stretch of the night. Mm-hmm. So that's where they naturally belong. And by comparing 
by comparing what happens and just making a list of checkboxes for what's activated by those things, we can come up with, a, with an ideal strategy for them that is based on what's true about the body. So the first thing we look at is a, check, a list of checkboxes. Like, well, what is it these things are doing? Like, okay, well, let's make a list. Um, so that you're going to get the induction of autophagy. Okay, that's great. Um, you're going to get the induction of HDAC inhibition, which is, you know, essentially allowing the body to better transcribe and read DNA to make proteins. That's great. Um, you're going to get, you know, a, a, a list of things that happen from that. And so we're going to get repletion of NAD. We're going to get all these great things. Hmm. Okay. So, well, that's what happens. Great. Where do, where do these things happen naturally? Well, they happen during the genetic rush hour when you're sleeping. Okay, great. So this brings us to the first point, which is hmm, before we look at anything outside of sleep, we really need to correct and maximize sleep because all of the things that all the signal pathways, AMPK, CERT1, autophagy, uh, ubiquination, all these things that are life, pro-life, pro-life extension happen during sleep. They're just much stronger mm -hmm. than they are outside of sleep. So if we can maximize the natural occurrence of anything, we are going to be getting the bang for the buck result. So, so strategy becomes, okay, before we do anything external, let's maximize sleep. Let's do that first. That's the first box we check. And when we look at AMPK activation, CERT1 activation, all these things, they're not simple. Um, and they're, they're not these things that should exist off by themselves. For example, AMPK and CERT1 activation is highly, highly, highly dependent on uh, the presence of HIF1, hypoxia-inducible factor 1, which I talk about in my book. And the presence of hypoxia-inducible factor in the activation of AMPK has very different consequences when you're young versus when you're old. So one commonality that we see is as people age, the airway collapses and the, mm -hmm. the shape of the face begins to collapse. And what that does is it constricts the airway and you tend to get more HIF1 production while you sleep and more occurrence of sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. So I'm, what I'm doing is I'm backing this up to a list of things to do in the order of operations. And so the very first thing we'd want to correct is we want to correct airway flow. Mm -hmm. Now, you might think, well, gosh, that, that has nothing. To, what's that have to do with AMPK, CERT1, and autophagy and all that stuff? And the answer is um, it's the first step. It's the first thing we should check. Right. Um, so <clears throat> when looking at all of this stuff, kind of a big takeaway is you have to look at the big picture and you have to look at the order of operations for these things. Because again, the body's not simple. Mm -hmm. But if we can begin to take the natural occurrence of any of these things and make it work better, then where that leaves us is if we need anything additional, you know, we can, we can look at that as a separate question. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, you know, it, it does make sense in a, in a way that, uh, you know, if you, if you try to, you know, optimize these longevity pathways, then yeah, you should, uh, <laughs> you should know also like when do, when does the body naturally release them and et cetera. And definitely like sleep is uh, very critical for, for those things, especially, like uh, repairing the body and uh, clearing out all the junk with autophagy. So most of it happens during sleep. So, so if, you're, if you're like sleep begins to suffer because of uh, doing like these other things, then uh, it's not going to be worth it. So to say you're going to, you're counter balancing all the benefits with the negative effects. Well, yeah. So for example, um, fasting, which we, we do fasting. One of the reasons we do fasting is to get the benefits of autophagy. 
Well, the problem with that is fasting disrupts sleep. It's been proven. Fasting disrupts REM sleep. And also, more importantly, what the latest research now seems to strongly suggest is that when we look at the central clocks in the brain that manages diurnal rhythm and then the organ clocks, the peripheral clocks, and we look at like, well, which, which seems to kind of run the show? It seems to be that the organ clocks kind of have the final say. And it's something that, that's very, very easy to prove. Like, like all you have to do is just eat a giant, giant meal, like five, 6,000 calories in broad daylight, in the middle of sunlight, and watch what happens. You're going you're gonna to take a nap. You're going to go to sleep in broad daylight. Um, conversely, if you are starving, you'll wake up in the middle of the night. So it seems to be the organ clocks exert more control. Well, well, guess what? The timing and the sequencing of meals can dramatically influence the clock onset of sleep. So where this plays out in a practical sense is, let's take a look at NAD, for example. So NAD is sort of a hot topic nowadays, and you know it's, it's looked at like as, as this sort of anti-aging miracle. And NAD can be, can be extremely beneficial, but it can also be extremely negative. It can work both ways. It's got duality. Mm-hmm. So the way, the principal way the body repletes NAD is during sleep. That's how the body repletes NAD. But you get a bit of a paradox because NAD is one of the key control points over the molecular clocks that control sleep induction. So when NAD declines, sleep declines, but then when sleep declines, NAD declines. So you get this sort of cycle that happens as sleep declines. Yeah. So if, if we back out and we go, well, gosh, okay, so let's start with sleep. Let's, repeat, rep- let's restore sleep first. Where's our bang for the buck at? Well, it seems to be in the area of airway flow, and it seems to be that there's a number of things we can look at uh, to improve airway flow, and it, it, it often starts in childhood. At least here in the United States, um, the fattest people in the world, <laughs> what, we see, <laughs> what we see is a huge incidence of childhood obesity uh, connected to sleep apnea and snoring. And it has to do with inadequate development of the facial structure from chewing soft foods. And so there's a whole list of things we can start early on to get fantastic improvements in sleep quality. And... Um, and mouth breathing. Mouth breathing is also causing it. Yes, absolutely. Yes, you're oxygenating the brain 20% less. Yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy, yeah. Uh, what I wanted to touch upon a little bit more was, uh, so, so yeah, like, the, for example, uh, hypoxia in excess can be harmful uh, because it's going to essentially keep you awake and uh, cause like sleep apnea and those things. But in, in small amounts, can it also be beneficial because of like, you know, during exercise, you're also creating some hypoxia and, uh, and such. Uh, yeah, fantastic question. By the way, I tend to rant. So um, just please <laughs> shut me up if I'm ranting too long. No problem. It's great. It's great to hear all these ideas. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So let's come back to this idea of biological duality and let's get out of the baby talk of, you know, hypoxia is good. Hypoxia is bad. Um, <clears throat> so hypoxia can be good. It can be bad. Um, some examples of when it's good, it's really good in the dermis of the skin. Like you want some hypoxia in the dermis of the skin. It's going to upregulate a whole suite of proteins and do a bunch of things that actually rejuvenates the skin. It's really good at the end of exercise. So, one quick hack for age-related loss of exercise recovery is to add some hypoventilation at the end of your workout. And it's super, super, super easy to do. Basically, it involves 
just restricting airflow on your last exercise or two. And I talk about some techniques in my book to do that. And so that will increase hypoxia inducible factor and actually helps you recover better from exercise. That's fantastic. Okay. Where it's not so good <clears throat> is during sleep and particularly in the brain. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much biochemistry you want me to get into, but, but just to, I don't think most people are interested so much in that, but just to dabble into a little bit of why it's important. What happens, and the reason this is so important, is during sleep or in the presence of intermittent hypoxia, normally what happens is hypoxia-inducible factor is a protein that when a cell is, is starting to get oxygen-starved, your body makes it. And it's a compensatory mechanism that helps your body essentially, or helps cells essentially continue to function. And normally what happens is it's ubiquinated, meaning that it's just broken down and and disposed of um, within a few minutes. And so that's a good thing. But in the presence of hypoxia, what happens is you get these these oxygenation, saturation, desaturation reactions going on back and forth. Mm -hmm. And what that does is the normal mechanisms that break hypoxia inducible factor one down, which is an enzyme called prolohydroxylase. Well, that gets interfered with. And so instead what you get is mTOR activation and mTOR mediates the continued presence of hypoxia inducible factor one in the cell. And that's very bad. What happens is then it translocates into the nucleus and it becomes a transcription factor and it activates all these genes that are essentially bad, like nothing good. Um, one of the most important is an endothelial um, or rather a vascular related protein that essentially is very cancer promoting. Mm-hmm. So the presence of hypoxia inducible factor during sleep related to lack of oxygen, related to sleep apnea, related to you know all these things is in terms of... Um, bang for the buck or simple things we can do that are going to give massive results. It's one of the first things we want to jump on. And there's, there's a number of techniques in my book I talk about to sort of spin that down and, and, and help lower that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's quite, you know, breathing is more important than nutrition in a lot of aspects. Like you can't really live long without oxygen and breathing the right way, but you can survive for like food for quite a long time. What's interesting is um, when you begin to look at, all of these things that, that we tend to think are true um, in, in sort of just, you know, kind of let's call it popular culture science or, or kind of the circles you and I are in. And you begin to look at them through the lens of HIF-1, what you'll quickly see is that mm, actually we don't really know that much. Mm-hmm. So when we look at, when we look at um, how the mitochondria work and our understanding of the mitochondria, we think we have a pretty good picture until you induce, introduce hypoxia-inducible factor. And then it becomes like, oh, wow, this is really essential to how the mitochondria work, and, and there's a lot of unknowns here. We don't even know how this thing gets inside there. Or when you begin to look at um, glycolysis and insulin function, you begin to see that, oh, my gosh, wow, um, this, this, uh, is in, this is central to glycolysis in cancer cells and how these things work. And so mm-hmm. um, the, the, the ante for the importance of hypoxia and the balance of hypoxia goes to the roof very, very fast. And it's tied to a very, very, very important concept I put forth in my book, which is it's a concept called steering macrophages. 
Um, so for, for the listener, uh, if you haven't heard that word before, it, it's not that hard. It's two big words. It's macro, which means big, and then phage, which means eater. Mm-hmm. So a macrophage is an immune cell. And one of the concepts I built my book around was the idea that um, you can learn to steer populations of immune cells and that these immune cell populations have a dramatic effect on the aging process and understanding how and when to steer them um, gives you a tremendous amount of power for very little effort and hypoxia inducible factor is greatly tied into the types of macrophages so Generally speaking, we have the inflammatory macrophages. These are called the M1 phenotype. And then we have the anti-inflammatory called the M2, um, which is a, a, a giant oversimplification. It's more complex. Sometimes, sometimes the M2 can be bad. Sometimes it can be good. But in most cases, that, that analogy holds. But big picture, learning to understand that immunity and control of immune cells is probably the most powerful thing affecting the aging process and it's something you can take control of is one of the one of the key concepts i was hoping the reader would take away in my book so how do you do it (laughs) how do you get the beneficial macrophages the answer is tissue by tissue so you have to take each tissue separately and you have to go through and in each tissue just kind of check the boxes off so the most important place where macrophages um, or, or number one, top of the list, is the lamina propia, which is the layer of the gut lining just below the brush barrier in the intestines. And that is the largest concentration of macrophages in the body. It's the very first place that, in most cases, we see the onset of inflammation mm-hmm. and all sorts of things that go wrong. And so that's the number one tissue that we have to look at. Mm-hmm. So the gut, gut essentially controls uh, your immune system primarily. Like most of the immune system is located in the gut, and uh, it's almost like the first point of contact with you and the outside world as well. Yeah, that's the point I make in my book. Um, it's it's where the it, it's kind of an interesting concept if you think about it. Like every day you take in the outside world into your body, but the outside world doesn't become part of your body until it's assimilated in the gut. So you can have the outside world in your body contained in this little sort of, you know, bubble and it never actually becomes part of you. Um, So the principal incursion point in the body is the gum lining and the lining of the gut. That's Mm -hmm. where all the trouble begins, generally speaking. And in terms of understanding how to control and steer macrophage populations, if we were to just make a list and say, okay, um, in terms of the biggest results for the least effort, let's go down the list. What's number one? We would come up with, oh, wow, it's the gut lining. It's the lamina propia and the macrophage types that are just under that. Because what happens is, think of it this way. If something from the outside world that's not supposed to be inside your body gets past the, um, gets past the tight junctions of the gut, it's going to run into a wall of macrophages right in the gut lining. Mm-hmm. And let's take the case of lipopolysaccharide, which, which is just a bacterial cell wall fragment. If that gets past the tight junctions of the gut, it's going to collide with a bunch of macrophages in the gut. And what that's going to do is it's going to drive polarity of macrophages. So you're going to go, you're going to, you're going to lose balance. You're going to go more towards the inflammatory macrophages. And, and in a sense, it kind of acts like a virus. You know, I don't mean that it is a virus. I just mean that you see 
the types, the phenotypes of these macrophages spread towards the inflammatory kind because you're de they're dealing with an injury. And that's what happens at a micro level when the gut lining is penetrated is you have a little injury. And so the process of healing injury looks pretty much the same no matter where you look at it. It's the onset of injury recruits the inflammatory macrophages. And that's fine. It's supposed to work that way. The problem is when they don't go away. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we want to attack the, the first incursion point in learning how to steer macrophage populations in the body. And this is, I pointed out in the book, I didn't write a book about lifestyle. This is not about making smart choices or healthy choices or lifestyle or any of that junk. Like I'm not a, I, I don't, I'm not a believer. I'm a believer in skills. I believe that skills are power and that skills are abilities. And if you can pick up key abilities, even just one ability, uh, that's that you can master you can you can create a dramatic dramatic impact on your life a, a good example is reading like if you could just learn to read it will change your life in ways you can't imagine if you can just learn to steer macrophage populations it'll change your life in ways that other people won't have so yeah yeah so like you know biohacking itself is like a skill you understand you understand the human body better and then you can learn to use different trick, tricks to uh, uh, create a certain response in, in terms of your health. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I think what I would offer to that sort of uh, conversation would be that as it exists today, biohacking has become, let's use the analogy again of martial arts, biohacking has become like um, where it's at right now is you know, um, there are kicks. And so someone practices kicks and they kick a bag all day long and they get really good at kicks. And then another person, uh, practices punching so that, so they punch a wall all day long and they get really good at punching, but that's not the same thing as a fight. It's nowhere near the same thing as a fight in a fight. You have to apply the right thing at the right time in the right way. And there has to be a strategy and you have to know what tends to really happen in fights. Like for example, um, what most fights wind up like is, well, you know, you've got a, you've got the shouting match, that's 30 seconds. And then you have actual contact. Uh, both guys are going to throw a big right hand and then they're going to clinch and then they're going to go to the ground. And then, then they're going to be exhausted after 30 seconds. That's how most of them go. <laughs> so if you're prepared for that, your, your probability or your likelihood of getting the result you want is very good. And we can apply that same thinking to the body. And the first thing we have to do is we have to, we have to, look at, well, how does the body actually work? And then what really happens over time? If we look at those two things, we're probably going to get the result we want. Mm -hmm. And the first place that we ask that question is in an order of importance, which is, hmm, well, the, the gut lining seems to be where a lot of problems start. And so how do we begin to steer macrophage populations in the gut? Mm -hmm. Yes, you mentioned like butyrate, uh, so I would imagine that butyrate is a key part for uh, keeping the gut lining healthy. It's essential. Um, it's essential. Without butyrate, the gut will be destroyed. Essential. So for, for the listener, um, just to kind of start at a high level, butyrate is simply a fat. That's all it is. It gets its name from butter, which um, you can think butterate. That's, that's what it is. Um, it's a special fat. It's, it's what's called a short-chain fatty acid. Um, and you have principally three. These are the byproducts of when bacteria ferment in the gut, they make these fats. And each of them, each of these fats, you've got propionate, acetate, and butyrate. Each of them does different things and has a lot of very unique aspects to it. Um, 
for purposes of health, what we really need to focus on is butyrate. The reason is butyrate is the tool set by which the gut maintains the gut lining. It's also the primary fuel source of the colon. So mm -hmm. the cells of the colon prefer butyrate. And you can actually look at what happens when they get starved of butyrate, and it's not good. Um, Long-term, when they're starved of butyrate, there's a chemical signature that you find um, wherever there's problems. You see it in cancer. You see it, um, you see it with inflammation. Well, what happens is that the lining of the gut takes on that exact same chemical signature when it's deprived of butyrate over long, long periods. So mm. it's essential. We have to have butyrate. Um, learning how to make butyrate, I would argue, is an essential life skill because if you, if you don't know how to maintain the gut lining, it's going to wear down and your health will be compromised. It's not if, it's just when. Yeah. So how do you do it? <laughs> um, short answer is fiber. That's the short answer. Um, but to elaborate on that a little bit, <clears throat> involves just understanding how things actually work. And again, I keep saying the same things. I keep saying how things actually work and what really happens. Because as long as you deal with those two things, you're going to get the result you want. But when you get away from those things, you're not. Um, so the way that butyrate is principally produced in the gut lining is through the fermentation of fibers. And so what happens is when you take fibers into the gut, fibers, essentially fiber are just things that don't digest. That's, that's what fiber is. Mm -hmm. When you take fiber into the gut, different bacteria will eat the fibers essentially ferment and a key concept to understand is that fermentation makes bacteria for every 100 grams you ferment a fiber you're going to make 30 grams of bacteria the really cool thing is you get to decide what kind of bacteria you make if you know what to do <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, this is getting to steering macrophages you can quite literally steer macrophages in the gut towards the anti-inflammatory kind by steering the types of fiber which create the types of bacteria that make butyrate. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really how you do it. So an example is, um, one example is dark fruits. And if you look at the phytobacteria, which is... Um, a health-promoting bacteria in the gut. I, I argue in my book, you, you don't need to focus on anything other than bifidobacteria and one other bacteria, acromantia. Um, when you look at bifidobacteria and you look at like, well, what does, bacteria, what does bifidobacteria do? Bifidobacteria feeds other bacteria in what are called cross-reactions. So if we feed bifidobacteria, we're probably going to get what we need. And one of the ways we can feed bifidobacteria is through dark fruits and it's the color pigments in the fruits the phenols in the fruits are substrate for bifidobacteria so mm -hmm. by giving the gut dark fruits um, in the right time in the right way we can help bifidobacteria to proliferate now where people and by the way if i'm rambling just shut me up again but um <laughs> where people get into trouble is <clears throat> they hear the word uh, fiber is good i need to have fiber great i'm gonna have fiber and what they do is they go eat too much Right. So, so a key concept to understand is hormetic training of the body, meaning um, it, it's a bit of, I call it the hormetic paradox, and it's this. It's the foods that give you the problems make the bacteria that solve the problems. 
<laughs> yeah. And that's how it works. It's the foods that give you problems are going to ferment bacteria and those bacteria will solve your problems. So you have to start small. And that's just, that's the takeaway is you have to start small and work your way up. Um, I don't have any issues with fiber because I've conditioned my gut to be able to handle any kind of fiber in very large amounts, but it takes time to get there. And so when you hear things like this and, you know, from this show, for example, you just, your takeaway is start small. Right. Yeah, it's, it's so true that uh, if, if something is good, then, then people tend to think that more is better and that they, they can definitely go to the uh, far extents of eating too much fiber and getting some you know, autoimmune issues from that or just you know, constipation and bloatedness and so on. So yeah, like you have to kind of always know like how, how much your body can handle and uh, what's kind of the optimal dose. Uh, but what are your thoughts on uh, like the carnivore diet, for example, that uh, you, you, can, you can still get some butyrate from uh, even animal foods like butter and uh, animal fats? Uh, yes, you can. The, the issue you get into is that the, if you actually trace the pathways down of butyrate production from animal foods versus fibers, um, the problem you get into is you're going to get an imbalance of the other short chain fats. So you're going to get a little more, you're going to get more propionate than you would. It, it's your ratio of acetate, propionate, and butyrate. Mm -hmm. So when you look at fermentation from fiber pathways, um, you're going to get an optimal ratio of butyrate to propionate to acetate. When you look at long-term sustained fermentation from animal food pathways, you're going to get more propionate in the mix here. And that, that can become an issue, um, very much an issue. Um, but it's not to say that, that uh, for example, let's take the carnivore diet. Um, love it. Love the concept of the carnivore diet. I mean, like who doesn't want to eat, well, me, speaking, speaking for myself, um, the idea of eating steak round the clock, oh my gosh, that sounds fantastic. I mean, the, wow, really? Great, fantastic. <laughs> um, sounds great. And, and I do believe that, um, that if we look at it functionally, that there's lots of positives to a season of doing it. I think that you could, for example, make a very good case that um, there are times when you really want to focus on adding muscle for longevity reasons and you know, carnivore diet would be fantastic. Um, there might be a season where you really want to cut body fat and carnivore diet would be fantastic for that. Um, but again, we have to come back to how the body really works. So let's, let's start with chemistry because as long as we're dealing with math and chemistry, we're going to always be, be on safe ground. When we start ignoring the chemistry, we're going to get in trouble. And so one of the things we have to look at is O6-methyl-2-deoxyguanosine. So basic concept is this. <clears throat> Meat ferments. And if you want to prove it to yourself, just leave a piece of meat out for a week and watch what happens. Okay. <laughs> it's going to ferment bacteria. So the same thing happens in your gut. Meat in the gut ferments. And when meat ferments in the gut, it's very different from when fiber ferments. When meat ferments in the gut, you're going to make a, um, essentially you're going to make a compound called O6-methyl-2-deoxyguanosine. And O6-methyl-2-deoxyguanosine is a cancer promoter. Um, it's, it's carcinogenic. And so when you look at the chemistry and the reactions, we have to deal with this. We can't pretend it's not there. It's there. Mm -hmm. Well, <clears throat> that's not a problem if we have a way to offset it. And so what I would say is for myself, if I wanted to go on a carnivore diet, I would probably add in some fiber with that because it's been shown, there's good research that shows the way you can offset um, the cancer promoting aspects of meat is through fiber. What happens is the fiber essentially acts as detergent and the, car the carcinogenic compounds don't form. So 
that would be my personal choice. Um, maybe someone else wouldn't want to do that, but I just looking at the chemistry would say, mm, okay, so I'm going to add some asparagus to my meat and I'm going to eat it raw and the fiber will ferment and I don't have any issues. And then I get the benefits of both. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And, and like for so, the, the fiber itself will also bind to like these uh, pollutants and heavy metals and other, other compounds that uh, tend to come with uh, some of the meats. So uh, you're going to offsetting that as well. So yeah, it's a kind of smarter, <laughs> smarter way of having a little fiber in a way. But uh, what, 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 in my opinion, like, for example, if you are going like on a completely carnivore diet, then the meat itself isn't probably going to ferment because there's no fiber there that would slow down the transit process, uh, so to say. So you would digest the meat you know, quite rapidly, more, so to say. You, you don't have fiber that is uh, slowing down it, and it's not going to have like the uh, possibility to start fermenting. But on the other hand, if you combine a bunch of fiber with a bunch of meat, then that's going to probably slow down the digestion of the meat as well. And then you're going to have, may run into this problem. So it's like the problems tend to come from these mixed diets where people are just eating too much food in general. That's a really, really interesting point. Um, and I think it's, I think it's worth, you know, kicking around and looking at different aspects of that um, because there is a lot of debate on this. Um, Gut transit time is, is an important variable, absolutely. Um, you're still going to get fermentation just, just by the virtue of the fact that you know, it's still going to take 12 to 16 hours to pass it through your gut. So in that time, it's going to ferment. Um, I don't believe that's really a problem you know, over the short term or in, in you know, mm-hmm. small amounts, meaning like it, it, the short term could be six months. Like, like you, could just, yeah. you, might, you might do that for six months. I, I don't really believe it's a problem. Again, my, my only point is that it's the sustained imbalance of things that becomes a problem. So, you know, if you were doing that for years and years and years and years, well, yeah, you're, you're creating a mathematical probability for something to take place that me personally, I, I don't want to look at. I, like, I don't want any probability of that. So, yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's, it's almost like, you know, once you take the stance that, okay, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, then you're already kind of blindfolding yourself or you're putting yourself into this box and you're kind of 100% certain at the, you're 100, 100% confident that this is what you're doing is the most optimal thing and this is the healthiest thing to do it which I think is too arrogant for anyone to ever say because you know one thing you know Socrates itself said the only thing I know is that I know nothing so you ne- you can never be 100% sure that this is the way you go and this is the 100% uh, correct solution so putting yourself into this box itself is a uh, is like an is it already like self self defeating? If that makes sense. Oh, totally, and I agree. I, I think that you know, we, we, first of all, here's here's what I've seen in in my forty plus years of doing this. I, what I have seen is herd behavior, where you will see these these fads where for a period of years, like three, four, five years, um, the herd will jump onto some idea and be like, "Oh my gosh, this is fantastic! I'm going to do this forever." But then what will happen is. And if you think about it, it makes sense. The, the history of science is the history of thinking we were totally right when we were wrong. Um, what will happen is some, some, something will go wrong. Like, um, for example, uh, the Atkins diet came out um, late 80s and the guy that promoted it died from his diet. So um, you, something will happen and then, and then the herd will move away and polarize in some other direction. Um, and, and so this, I've seen this happen quite a bit. And what we're seeing right now in some of these camps is, is just the, re- the repeat of that thing. Um, I just think that we always have to play on the side of common sense and, and, and really safety in terms of the long term. So we don't 100% know how the body works. Um, we don't 100%, we can't 100% for sure say 
you know, how a lot of things work. But as long as we're coming back to some basic concepts that health seems to be the balance of the body system and disease seems to be the imbalance. As long as we're, as long as we're sort of staying in the, in, in the safe zone, we're going to, you know, we'll, we'll be fine for the long term. and the extremes of different fads that come along can kind of come and go. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and it doesn't even mean that you can't partake. Like I think keto diets are a fantastic tool. I think they're fantastic. I think mm-hmm. that they have a lot of functional benefits and that's really the takeaway is that there are functional benefits to just about everything. Like, like vegan diets have a lot of functional benefits. Uh, the carnivore diet has a lot of functional benefits. Keto diets have functional benefits. Mm-hmm. It's just really the idea that, well, I'm going to do this forever. That, that's where you get into trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, as you said, some periods of carnivore can be beneficial, but I, I myself, don't, you know, I don't have like a reason to do it. I don't have any health problems and, uh, and such. I also want, want to maintain this sort of, a, like you said, the hormetic uh, resilience, so to say. I don't want to become uh i don't want to get like autoimmune disorders just because of avoiding plants (laughs) so to say like if you are doing a carnivore diet for the rest of life then you may not be able to go back to like a regular way of eating just because you kind of destroyed this uh sort of uh, ability to tolerate uh, these plant compounds that come along and and along those lines i mean i'll tell you i I just i have heard some of the craziest things said um by people that you know we, we should be listening to because they have good credentials, but you have to just, you have to, you have to look at what makes sense and, and how your body really works. Um, for example, I heard one guy say, there's no use for fiber in the human diet. And, and this was someone that, you know, is very well respected. So just being in the industry, like what I can tell you is that if you can get the, the, the United States FDA to approve a claim for something, the evidence has to be so overwhelming, you can't debate it. So mm-hmm. overwhelming. And there's only two claims the FDA allows for fiber. One of them is that it prevents cancer. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's like f- to, make, to allow you to make that claim, there, the evidence has to be so overwhelming that it's not even debatable for the FDA to allow it. So mm-hmm. there, there's just an era here of... Um, of sort of a there's there's always going to be imbalances of thought imbalances of you know extremes and it's fine you know whatever but you have to know that those things are going to come and go you're in a really fantastic position because you are applying these things um so young right now that i think that as the years roll on here if you can keep a photo journal of yourself i think that what you're going to be able to produce you know over time is sort of this um uh, body of work that shows the applied impact of all these anti-aging strategies and you know you're going to be like 60 looking like you're 30 <laughs> yeah we'll see we'll see like only time will tell like uh, i recently just took the uh, dna methylation test as well so uh, mm-hmm. we'll see what my biological age actually is in a few weeks <laughs> oh that, that's a very interesting topic um i actually just did another podcast on that um what i would what i would maybe just as an interesting sort of discussion throughout is um, there are, there, there are quite a few emerging ways to measure uh, biological age and some of them um, may be more accurate than methylation tests. Um, so we, we've all kind of bought into this idea that DNA methylation is kind of the thing and it shows us, you know, our age and all that stuff. Um, that's actually just a school of thought. There, there are other, for example, um, serum glycans, um, are probably a better predictor of biological age 
than than DNA methylation. Um, that's that's one school. There's another school that has been able to show that um, the plasma proteome for very specific proteins can deliver very accurate um, biological age predictions. Um, and, and in fact, has shown that there are really three specific waves of aging. We, we have three specific junctures, um, age 34, age 60, and age 78, where aging seems to really progress forward. And what is interesting about that particular school of thought is it gives us some practical takeaways. Like, okay, well, at age 34, I've got to focus on these things. At age 60, I've got to focus on these things. And so it's, it's getting into a very interesting time in terms of measuring real biological age and the way that we measure it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, for, for example... Uh, as you get older, one one good example of this is you know as you get older, you're naturally losing some of the muscle mass, and muscle is very important for uh, anti-aging. And uh, when you're older, then you need to do like certain things that would uh, preserve more muscle compared to when you're young. You can get away with more things, so to say. Um, yeah, gosh, that that is such a fascinating topic. Um, I I could only devote one chapter in my book to that, um, just because nobody wants to buy a 600 page book, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's such a fascinating area. Um, the big takeaway from that is that, um, circulation and the quality of your blood and muscle are basically two halves of a whole. They are so closely related and so intertwined that we kind of have to look at them as a single thing. But what we see with age is that the age related loss of muscle, uh, that, that begins to progress with age um, almost one-to-one is tied to an age-related decline in the quality of our blood. Mm. And it's for, it's for various reasons, but the, the two are very much connected so that as we age, as we begin to look at a way to hack that, we're looking at how to keep our blood to profile as young. And if we can do that, we can ameliorate a lot of the age-related loss of muscle. Mm-hmm. That's, that's pretty interesting. Uh, so, uh, for example, you know... I don't know, giving blood <laughs> or something would be beneficial or. Uh, so <clears throat> that, that gets into, um, there, there's a, there's a camp right now that is all about, um, there's one school of thought right now that's, that's about age related iron accumulation. And the way you solve that is by periodically giving blood. Um, that's, that's kind of one way to look at some of the issues that we see with age. And um, there, there's, there's definitely a lot of anecdotal evidence that, that it's actually a very good practice and, and seems to work very well. Mm-hmm. Um, another school of thought is that when you actually look at the structure function changes of blood over time, there's really two things going on. Number one is the composition and the mix of immune cells in blood changes. And number two is the actual oxygen content in blood is going downhill and it's related to the viscosity of your blood, the clumpiness, and the deformability of blood cells. So as we age, our blood gets clumpier. And so that's a big fix that we can look at. Like, okay, well, how can we just keep our blood from being clumpy? And then another aspect of it is the actual structural flexibility of red blood cells is going downhill. And so that's another area that we can look at as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, so hypoxia is also like a, another, you know, points back to hypoxia. This, uh, yes, but it's a bigger discussion. So, um, and it's very interesting. What what we see with, and it kind of makes sense. First of all, just like back up and think about like, well, kind of makes sense that you know circulation is super important to 
health and aging. That just makes sense. So when we look at age-related loss of the things that circulate, what does circulation do? Well, it, it oxygenates tissues, yes, but it's also sort of a vehicle for controlling inflammation and controlling, um, controlling immune cell populations. What happens with age, it gets very interesting. Um, the blood itself becomes a pro-inflammatory medium, and there's a lot of reasons why this is true, but... <clears throat> In terms of like a practical takeaway, like well, what can we do about this? It takes us down. Um, it takes us down a road where we have to we have to kind of look at a lot of the age related problems that we see as circulatory issues, one way or another. One way or another, it's coming back to issues with the blood. Um, sometimes it's hypoxia. Um, for example, we are in a, a functional era of don't sit. Like like sitting's bad. You shouldn't sit. Well, is it really sitting or is it just that the quality of the blood is going downhill and so the tissues aren't being oxygenated as much? Mm-hmm. Well, because if, if that's true, then that's, that, there's kind of an easy fix for that. It's, it's, you can integrate intervals of things into your day and by doing so, you can in effect mimic younger circulation. So it just gets into all these sort of really interesting discussions. Mm-hmm. We, we, yeah, basically, I could just move more <laughs> and stay active and, uh, and uh, breathe some fresh air, take some uh, nature walks, those sort of things. Um, yeah, yeah, essentially. Um, it, it just, you know, we look at, well, is it sitting that's bad? Um, or, or is, or it, is it of the blood? Exactly. Yeah. And so it looks like mm, it's probably more of a fact that your blood's going downhill. Yeah. Um, maybe sitting's bad. Yes. But maybe the fact your blood's going downhill is worse. And, and so that gets into, well, what can we do about that? <laughs> and there's all kinds of things you can look at. You can look at, um, a really interesting a really interesting area right now is the administration of uh, urethra protein or EPL as sort of an, uh, a longevity hack. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a whole gray market for that right now. And looking at, um, at something like that. Um, I, I would say if that's something you're going to do, you need to really work with like a doctor who knows what they're doing because there's, there's lots of complications that could happen, mm-hmm. but um, that's one way that you can oxygenate blood more as you age. Hmm. Yeah, that's those are all really fascinating topics, and yeah, we can we could talk more and hours and hours. About this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we 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 just kind of barely scratched the surface of all the topics that you covered in your book, and it's definitely like a really good uh, read for anyone. So uh, I, I advise uh, anyone to listen or read it. And uh, before I ask my last question, uh, where can people get the book, and uh, what can they learn about your work? Oh, uh, yeah. So thank you so much. Um, so. Uh, veepnutrition.com and um, you can get the book there. The, the bang for the buck is the digital bundle where we bundle the audiobook with the digital version of the book. Um, and then my Instagram is realjoelgreen and that's uh, green with an E on the end. And I just set it up so uh, uh, I feel like a total loser so please come follow me. <laughs> and then <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's where you get the book right now. Awesome. Sounds good. So we're going to put the links in the show notes. And my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner? Oh, wow. What a great question. Um, I want to ask you that question too. But uh, I would say one piece of advice I wish I had adopted sooner. Um, there's a concept in my book called the integrated interval. And it's the idea that there's enough power in 60 seconds to exhaust your body for the entire day. Like if you just run a flat out quarter mile, you, you would see that's true. And if you took, if you took that same power and you broke it into 20 second intervals and then you just made it like brushing your teeth, you just did it every day. 
the net change in your health and your body over 20, 30, 40, 50 years wouldn't just be small. It would be night and day. It would be all the difference. And I figured that out um, in my early 40s um, that, that I didn't need to exercise much if I did the integrated interval and that I could get strong in any movement rapidly overnight. And if I had just figured that out in my teen years, um, it would be even more of a difference. So hmm. I would say that that's it for me. What about you? Um, well, uh, I think, oh, well, I started doing the, you know, the time restricted eating in, uh, in when I was 18. <laughs> so I, w- I wouldn't wow. start, I wouldn't start it sooner. So because all that was already pretty soon, but, uh, huh. I think, I, but I think like meditation was, is, is, was my hmm. biggest, biggest breakthrough because, hmm. you know, kind of teaches you, uh, more self-awareness, more self-control, and just uh, being more uh, mindful about all the all the things that are happening around you. So to say, it kind of puts you into this meta-aware state where you can start to analyze the situation and just pay more attention. Wow, that is a <laughs> actually now I'm thinking oh, I wish I'd said that. <laughs> That's a great answer. Well, listen, I, I love what you're doing. Um, gosh, it's uh, you know keep it up and. Yeah. Um, we should it's, do it's another cool. podcast on that soon, so definitely more topics to talk about. For sure, yeah. Um, keep, keep, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I love it. Yeah, and you too. All right, that's it for this episode of the Body, Mind, Empowerment Podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.